Well, we're returning in our study of the scriptures this morning to the book of James. So if you'll uh, turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1, you'll also find the text printed uh, for you in the bulletin. In the, um, in the inter- introduction to his book, uh, Reason for God, Tim Keller talks about growing up in a Lutheran church in western Pennsylvania. Uh, and they had something they went through as teenagers, kind of similar to our communicants class. They call it a confirmation class. And you would spend two years going through the basic doctrines of the Christian faith to see where you were spiritually and if you were to a point where you could make a public profession of faith in Christ. He said the first year he went through that class, it was taught by a retired minister who was very conservative. Uh, he taught traditional theological doctrines about heaven and hell and the justice of God and the sinfulness of man and our need for faith in Christ. The second year, however, the class was taught by a young seminary grad of a more liberal bent uh, who questioned a lot of the traditional theological doctrines, a lot of the traditional teachings of the church. But at the same time, he was very concerned about social issues and about liberating the oppressed and taking care of the poor and, and, and these sorts of things. And Keller comments that it was like being taught two different religions, uh, the two years of that class. And what he really wanted to ask them was, okay, so which one of you is lying? Uh, which one of these is, is really right? Uh, he said that his family wound up in a very conservative uh, church for many years, but then when he went off to college, he was bombarded with more liberal theological teachings. And he said he began to see like these, these two camps before him, but he felt like there was something wrong with both of them. And here's what he writes. The people most passionate about social justice were moral relativists, while the morally upright didn't seem to care about the oppression going on all over the world. And he said that at the time he was more drawn to the liberal group whose mantra was liberate the oppressed and sleep with who you wanted to. Uh, But, he writes, I kept asking the question, if morality is relative, why isn't social justice as well? If morality is relative, well, why isn't social justice relative too? Why does it matter if people are oppressed or not, if everything's relative? But the people who think morality is important don't seem to care about social justice. And if you look back over the, the history of the church in the 20th century in America, uh, you can see that, that many of the mainline denominations uh, in America went in more liberal theological directions, questioning things like the virgin birth of Christ, uh, the inerrancy of Scripture, uh, whether Jesus is indeed the only way to know God. While, and at the same time, they became very concerned about social issues. At the same time, more conservative Churches stayed true to to the theological traditions of the church, but they really kept social issues at arm's length, almost as if to say, that's not really what we're concerned about. We're concerned about issues of eternity, and we don't want you to confuse the two. So the question then becomes, well, which group is being more true to the Bible? Or let me ask it like this, which issue does the Bible say Christians really ought to be more concerned with. Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, look in James, and I want to read two verses which really are going to kind of set up 
the next several weeks in James, and then we'll come back to, to specifically what I want us to look at today. James 1, verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So what's James say here? First of all, he says God's concerned with our speech, with the things that we say. And then he says that we are to visit orphans and widows. You can do that, or you can keep yourself unstained by the world. That's not what he says, is it? He says we're to, to visit orphans and widows and keep yourself unstained by the world. James is, is saying the God of the Bible is concerned with your speech. Uh, he's concerned with your holiness. He's concerned with these uh, traditional things that we think of Christianity being about, the way you live life before God and how you're going to be right with Him when you're not in fact holy. But he's also concerned, he also wants you to be concerned with the helpless, with the people who have not, uh, because God Himself shows compassion to the needy. In other words, traditional doctrine is key, but that doctrine, that theology has got to work itself out in deeds of compassion and mercy. And so the next few chapters of James, he's going to kind of break these things down. He's going to talk about our speech. Uh, he's going to talk about what it looks like to be uh, undefiled, unstained by the world. And today, the section we're going to look, about, look at, he's going to talk about, all right, what does it mean, what does it look like to care for the have-nots? All right, so that's, that's where we are today. Uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And uh, the text in your bulletin goes through verse 13. I'm going to read just a little bit further. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you not, do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Uh, Would you pray with me, please? Uh, Father, we give you thanks uh, for your word. Uh, And and, and this is a difficult passage, and so I pray that you would uh, help me to speak truthfully and clearly, and that you would open our hearts to your word and cause us uh, to indeed examine ourselves. Uh, Open our hearts with your word. Expose us. uh, Show us uh, what we are like. Uh, and show us the remedy you have provided for us in Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. When I, um, when I finished college, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do with my life, and I wound up spending a semester in, in law school. And, and while we were there, my roommates and I, a little two other guys, and we lived in this house that a landlord had fixed up, to get students in, but it was kind of the edge of a rough part of town, and the house next to us was pretty run down. And there was a guy who lived there, who's probably 17 or 18, and he lived there with his grandmother. And we kind of got to know this guy and started hanging out with him, and we're trying to help them as, as we could. He didn't know how to read. Um, I don't even remember if he knew how to write that well, but we tried to spend time with him and, and encourage him as we could. And he would come with us to Bible studies uh, on occasion. But one of the things I remember is trying to get him to come to church with us. And he wouldn't come to church with us, even though he would go to a Bible study with us. And the reason he said he wouldn't come to church with us uh, is that he didn't feel like he had any clothes that were nice enough to wear to church. And so what had happened in his life, uh, he had this view of church. It was this place where you had to be all dressed up to come to you. And what had happened in his life where Christians had either uh, intentionally or unintentionally communicated to him that if you're really serious about this, if you really want to be accepted and be a part of what's going on in worship, you need to dress like us and look like us and come and be like one of us if you're really serious about this. See, our, our friend uh, very easily could have been the poor man that James talks about who walks into the assembly of God's people and is told, we may need to find somewhere else for you to sit. See, James describes this scene. Uh, God's people are assembled. It's probably for worship, although we're not entirely sure. And you have a well-dressed man coming in and a poorly-dressed man coming in. And the well-dressed man comes in and and the ushers say, oh, hey, Mr. So-and-so, we really admire your work. Come on down front. We've saved a seat for you right here. Can I get you anything? Do you need any coffees or anything we can do for you? Then the poor man comes in, and the usher says, we might have something up in the balcony, you're going to have to go look. Or you can sit out here, but you're going to have to sit on the floor beside my feet. Well, what's the problem here? Uh, James says that uh, the people of God are playing favorites. Uh, He says, show no, you should show, instead you should show no partiality. Or the NIV says, favoritism. And The literal Greek uh, word, the the Greek word means literally to receive the face. To receive the face. And the idea is simply that the people were making judgments based on appearances uh, about whether they're going to accept or reject people, whether they're going to really receive people into their fellowship 
or not. And James is telling them, look, you can't do that. That's, that's not how God's people uh, are, are, are to live. Now, we never do anything like this, do we? Um, I've been reading a book where the author is talking about this kid he knew in college. He started coming to a Bible study that, that they were having, and he said the guy wasn't very cool. He was socially awkward. He talked with a lisp. Uh, you know, he, he stuttered all of these things. He was really insecure. But he didn't mind really hanging out with him at the Bible study because he thought, well, you know, we're Christians. We're supposed to accept everybody. I need to welcome this guy. But when he was away from the Bible study and he's hanging out with, with all of his cool friends, then suddenly, I don't know if I want my friends to see me with this guy. And he said when he saw him, he would try to get out of the conversation with him as quickly as he could. James says, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can't base how you treat people on external appearances, on the way they dress, on the color of their hair, on the color of their skin, on, the, on, the, on how much money they have or how attractive they are or anything. But we all do that, don't we? I mean, we think about it. We walk into a room and we begin to make judgments. We start evaluating people. Where, where, where do they fit? We, we evaluate people based on their clothes, based on their appearances, based on whether we think we'd like to spend talking to them. We kind of size everybody up and label them. We pass judgment on them. We play favorites, as James says here. Uh, you, you might ask then, well, if we all do that, I mean, what's, what's the big deal if everybody does it? What's the problem with it? I mean, that's the way you get ahead in life, right? It's not what you know, it's who you know. Uh, you just got to know how to work the good old boy network. What, what's the problem with favoritism? Specifically, what's the problem with favoring the rich over the poor? If that's who I want to get in with, what's, what's wrong with that? Well, James says, first of all, look at verse 5. Here's the problem he has with that. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? James says, look, when you treat people like this, the way you're treating the poor is the exact opposite of the way that God treats the poor. And, you know, James isn't saying God only saves poor people, but he is writing to a largely poor community who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And he's saying, look, God rescued you when you were poor in the eyes of the world. God didn't discriminate against you. How can you turn around then and discriminate against others? I mean, imagine if, I don't, I don't know how many it is, the two or three women who have been accepted as members of the Augusta National Golf Club, if they turned around and started saying, that's enough, but we don't need any more women here. We're, we're glad to be here, but the rest of you don't need to apply now. Or imagine if I were penniless and some wealthy, wealthy benefactor came along and gave me a lot of money and helped me get back on my feet again, and then someone showed, at my door, showed up at my doorstep needing financial help, and I said, close the door, like, I don't, we don't need your kind around here. I'm, I, I can't help you out. The attitude of James' readers towards the poor doesn't match up with the way God had treated them. It doesn't match up with the way God treats the poor. He doesn't 
discriminate against them. In fact, uh, the scriptures indicate, as one writer put it, that God delights to shower His grace on those whom the world has discarded and who are most keenly aware of their own inadequacy. That the scriptures seem to indicate that God even has this special place in His heart, as it were, for the poor and the downtrodden uh, and the needy. And it's been said historically that the poor classes have been uh, more likely to embrace Christianity than the elites of society. That they've much more readily embraced the teachings of Christianity. Uh, Maybe it's because they're very aware of their own inadequacy. Uh, Maybe it's because they're very aware of their own need in the way that wealthier people are not. You know, if you're in the middle class, when you do well, what do you say? Well, I worked really hard to get here. I've done what I needed to do. I made something out of my life. Look, if you were born um, into a slave family in South Carolina in the 1800s, do you really think you'd have the college education that you have now? I mean, there are so many things in our lives that are simply gifts from God. We don't choose the families we are born into. And, and the poor realize that. Uh, that, 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 there's, that life is difficult. That life is not always fair in ways that many of us don't realize. We don't always get that. They see uh, the harsh realities of life in a fallen world that we are often, for a time at least, can insulate ourselves from. So they do long for a better place. They desperately long for a better place. Uh, and, and they're not ashamed to ask for help, as we are often ashamed to ask for help. Uh, and that, you know, if you think about it, at the end of the day, <clears throat> believing the gospel is about asking for help and receiving help. And our inability to ask for help is, is I think, one of the indicators that we don't really get the gospel at a very deep level. Anyway... James says the problem with your favoritism, the problem with your favoritism, the problem with your attitude toward the poor is that it's the exact opposite of God's attitude towards the poor and towards the needy. There's a second problem he highlights here, and this one is is more uh, pragmatic. Uh, Verse 6, But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you in the court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? And James says, the rich are actually, in your situation, they're the ones that mistreat you guys all the time, aren't they? Aren't they the ones who've been hauling you in to court? Aren't, aren't they the ones who take God's name in vain? Aren't they the ones uh, who make fun of this God that you worship? Why are you bowing down to them? Why are you falling all over yourself in front of them? Why do you want their favor so badly? And I was, you know, I was thinking about this and trying to think of a, a modern example of this, and, and I kept thinking about uh, how <clears throat> certain fraternities and sororities will haze people. If you pledge their fraternity, they'll often haze you uh, before you can become a member. And it's like, you really have to, to kiss up to the very people who are at the same time rubbing your nose in the dirt. And James is saying, that's kind of silly at the end of the day, isn't it? That, that you're trying to do that, that you're trying to gain the favor of the people who oppress you so that you can be 
one of them. And maybe that's not the best example, but I think we would all do well just to think about the different clubs, the different organizations that we belong to, and think about in those clubs and in those organizations the way we exclude people and how we exclude people based on race, status, appearance, personality, all of these things where we, we use to kind of keep those people, whoever those people may be, uh, at arm's length. And isn't that the type of thing that James is actually condemning here? Well, there's a third problem with showing partiality. I look in verses 8 through 11. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law but falls in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. James says simply, the third problem with your favoritism and your partiality is that you're actually breaking God's law when you do that. Uh, And, you know, if you're, look, especially in the South, if you're a white, middle-class conservative, that ought to make you a little bit nervous reading that. Because in the same breath, the same sentences, James here talks about adultery and murder and partiality. All right, they're not like, well, this is overhanded. They're, they're all lumped in there together. And if you think about that, what do, what do conservative Christians in the South tend to do? We tend to say, well, murder and adultery, those are the big things, and those are the things I want to try to avoid. But what I do with my money is my business. And who I hang out with is my business. And James says, when you favor rich over poor... When you favor white over black, when you favor the beautiful and the successful over the down and out, you're actually breaking the law of God when you do that. You're breaking the law of God which says you're supposed to love your neighbor. And those are your neighbors. And you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. He goes on to say when you break the law of God at any point... You've actually broken the whole thing. So don't sit around feeling good about yourself just because you haven't actually killed anyone. If you've shown partiality uh, to the rich over the poor, you're a lawbreaker. And he says, look, breaking the law of God is not like, uh, you know, we think of breaking the law of God as we think of this window with like a hundred panes in it. And maybe I've broken one or two down at the bottom. But... 98 of them are still unbroken, and they're still holding together pretty well. And James says the law of God is more like one big pane of glass. And if you break any of the commandments, you've shattered the whole thing. It's broken. You're a lawbreaker before God, justly deserving His condemnation, which is why we need Christ. Because we are all breakers of the law of God. Uh, But think about it. We live uh, in a culture... Uh, in which the church, for years, uh, was blind to the way in which they were treating African Americans. Uh, We live in a culture in which this time right now is still the most segregated hour every week. 
It's the most segregated hour of the week. Uh, and you may say, well, <coughs> progress has been made, and that's certainly true. That's certainly true. Um, but, but think about other ways in which we still separate ourselves. What, what are the barriers that are still there between the haves and the have-nots? They're there between, they're there between uh, the refined and the rednecks, uh, between the upper crust uh, and, and the lower classes, between the working class. There are all these socioeconomic divisions that are just as real in our culture uh, as they've ever been. Think about it for a minute. Think about who the people are that you don't want to associate with. Think about the places you go to wall yourself off from them. Again, whoever them is, I'm going to go over here because I don't want to have to deal with you. When we do that, are we really loving our neighbors? as we love ourselves. You know, are we as alarmed at the financial plight of our neighbor uh, as we would be if we were in that same economic situation? Do we really love our neighbor as we love ourselves? Well, what's the solution to all this? This is, a, this is something we all wrestle with. All right? there's, there's, there's nobody in here that doesn't wrestle with us in one form or the other. What's the solution to this favoritism? Well, well, quickly, three things here in the text. Uh, I think one of the reasons that we play favorites is that we're looking for glory. I mean, think about it. We want to be able to say, I'm in with the whatever crowd you're trying to be in with. The rich crowd, the intelligent crowd, the cool crowd, the movers and the shakers, the beautiful people. There's this radical insecurity that we have uh, that, that we all have as, as fallen people and we want to try to cover it with some form of earthly glory and so we surround ourselves we try to grab hold of a crowd to fit into you and gather around us so that we'll feel a little bit better about who we are notice here what James calls Jesus in verse 1 my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory. And, and the idea here is that the solution to that radical insecurity that we feel, the solution to that shame that we have inside of us, is not to create our own covering. It's not to create our own glory. It's to know Jesus Christ. The Lord of glory. The one who is glorious. You have to see that the glory you're trying to create for yourself by gathering a certain type of people around you is inadequate. You have to realize that you're made to bow before and have this relationship to the one, with the one who is glorious. That we're not meant to manufacture glory for ourselves. We're made to know Jesus who is the Lord of glory. Uh, the second antidote James gives us in the text is that we need to know the mercy of God. Uh, he says here, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? You know, you have to say to yourself, Has it, hasn't God been merciful 
to me. If, if you want to be someone who doesn't play favorites, if you want to treat the rich the same way you treat the poor, if you want to treat the poor and the needy the way God calls you to treat them, you've got to think long and hard on your condition before you knew Jesus Christ. That you may have been materially wealthy, but spiritually you were poor. You were bankrupt. You were broken, and yet God was merciful to you. Second Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, that you through His poverty might become rich. See, the only way that you and I can become people who don't exclude the poor and the outcast and the not-so-cool is when we really believe that Jesus Christ became poor. When I really believe that Jesus Christ became poor, when Jesus Christ left riches, his riches, in order to rescue me when I was poor and smelly and dirty and foul, when I was spiritually bankrupt, Jesus was merciful to me. That's got to be imprinted on your soul. The mercy of God has got to be imprinted on your soul if you're going to be a merciful person. But then James gives us one more antidote here to our favoritism. And it's a, it's a, it's a humbling one. Um, the last verse, verse 13, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James actually points us here to the coming judgment. And he says, look, if the gospel isn't making you a merciful person, then there's a good chance you've never known the mercy of God. If the gospel hasn't changed you in that way, then perhaps you've never really met Jesus. Perhaps you've never really received mercy. Because the gospel will make you merciful. And if you show no mercy to others, then God will show no mercy to you. Uh, Listen to to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Poor, weak, and needy people who have been welcomed and made whole by the Lord of glory delight to show mercy to poor, weak, and needy people. You know, honestly, if you claim the name of Christ, then this um, text is a good opportunity for you to examine yourself. Does my attitude toward the poor, uh, does that demonstrate that I have actually known the mercy of God? Am I a merciful person? How can I claim to know Christ and yet not be merciful? If you're not a Christian, uh, then the invitation is to admit, maybe for the first time, that you are poor and weak and needy and receive the merciful Lord of glory as your Savior and King. Let me pray for us. Father, Father, this is one of those texts that kind of hits you right between the eyes. Um, And I pray that you would use it in our lives and and cause us to examine ourselves. Uh, Examine ourselves in the mirror of your word. And then after we uh, see the truth about ourselves and the truth about who you are, help us not to be simply those who hear the word, but those who receive the word and do the word. Uh, And cause us to be those who do the word, not to, to gain favor, Father. Uh, but to be those who do the word and are merciful because you are merciful to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.